Chris, I miss you. And I miss you too, man. Oh, God. This pandemic, well, it just doesn't end. Well, that's a perfect segue into today's topic, uh, unfortunately, which is pandemic fatigue. And I guess we're just going to give a little update on, on just everything pharmacy related and related to COVID. Yeah, we're, we're nearing the, I mean, basically at the time of recording this episode, we're at the end of 2020 and we're starting 2021. And the world was in such a different state just last year, just 12 months ago, we were in a different state. And pharmacy, you know, we're a pharmacy podcast, that was in a whole different state as well. You know, we've gone from anyone able to go into the pharmacy direct contact with your patients, face-to-face. There's no, there was no plexiglass. There's no distancing. There's no hand hygiene. There's no waiting in your car to be called in to get your flu shot at the same time as flu season last year. And now it's a whole other ballgame. But the COVID vaccine is on the horizon. So does that mean we're all saved or, or, or maybe not quite yet? And I'm glad that Chris is bringing up the COVID vaccine because I think it's a great time to be talking about vaccine hesitancy. It's something we've talked about before with regards to influenza and getting your vaccine overall, but we're we're seeing it more so with the COVID vaccine, which is strange. It's kind of mind-boggling to me that you're you're at a point where this pandemic is not going anywhere. People are still getting sick. We're in the middle of a second wave and people still are feeling weird about getting vaccinated against something that's been killing thousands of people all over the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's take a step back and kind of talk about what we're going to talk about in the episode first, because we're going to we're going to do a deep dive into exactly why people are hesitant f- for getting the COVID vaccine. It, it's pretty similar to the same reasons that we've given previously, but there's a couple other reasons this time as well. So the main thing we wanted to talk about as a, as a whole in this episode was pandemic fatigue and how it relates to vaccines like we're talking about, how it relates to um, how pharmacies have had to adapt, uh, albeit a bit slower than we'd like, as well as just some other you know physical and mental health problems related to pandemic fatigue as well. Yeah, and I, and I guess... Chris and I have kind of been putting off talking about COVID for a long time. Uh, we're, we're, we'll admit to it, not because we're not interested in it or that we don't think people would be interested in it, is because, you know, throughout the end of the last season and in the beginning of this season, it's kind of all you hear about is COVID, COVID, COVID. And Chris and I talk about it with each other, but we didn't want to bring it into the podcast because we thought... It's just something that's done too much. And then the conversation started getting into everyone's just tired. And we're like, you know what? We, we have to talk about this. We have to talk about the fact that people are fatigued. They're tired. They're mentally drained. Um, not just from the pandemic that's been going on, but from all the cascading effects that it's brought upon everyone who lives in this country and throughout the world. So let's talk about this this phenomenon or this this... I don't even think it even has a formal diagnosis of pandemic fatigue. It's something that everyone's feeling, but no one's done. There hasn't been any research really on it yet. 
I mean, I don't think it's an exact diagnosis like you're saying, but from what we've seen in like the figures of how many adults are struggling through mental health, I think there was one figure I saw where one in five adults in the States or Canada had suffered some form of depression or an episode of depression throughout this pandemic, just because it takes a toll on you to, you know, completely change the way that you live your life and just completely cut off all ties to friends and family, at least physically, you know, after going through, what is it now? Nine months? Nine months are we at? It it definitely starts to pile up. And and, and the reason why we're talking about pandemic fatigue and mental health it's you might think you know it's not necessarily strictly pharmacy related but i mean a lot of what pharmacists do are related to public health like we we care about our patients we care about public health and and sure we're not the we're not the we're not the gatekeepers of public health in the community in terms of uh, regulations restrictions um, what is allowed and not allowed in private and, and public areas um, but it it it, it applies because Pharmacists work in different capacities throughout the healthcare system, whether it's in a hospital, in a long-term care home, in a community pharmacy, in the industry. And the types of people that we see, including our patients, are prone to, uh, are often prone to viruses like COVID. Um, I talk about this all the time with my patients in the hospital, um, and I let them know, you know, COVID, if you've got existing heart conditions or respiratory conditions, you're at higher risk of of having a fatal occurrence with COVID. Um, it's not something that everyone is able to just have, and it you know it's done, it's over. It's not like it's not like chickenpox, you know. Um, it's something that's very worrying and concerning for everyone involved, not just pharmacists who work, but the patients that we serve as well. Because at the end of the day, uh, and and this relates to pandemic fatigue and the stresses that pharmacists also face, I faced this myself before, is what if I get sick? That's the question I keep asking myself almost every single week. And I think especially in the beginning, like near the near May or June, where we were constantly struggling to secure proper PPE for everyone. And there were there were days where I worked in the pharmacy and they just didn't have masks to hand out. So I just like have to use my own, you know, like cotton mask or whatever it might be that I had on hand at the time, just because PP was an issue. And I mean, likely that's kind of in the past for us now, but it was definitely anxiety inducing for pharmacy professionals because like we are on the front lines. One thing I would mention as well as to why it still pertains to pharmacists, this whole issue of pandemic fatigue is that uh, patient, a lot of patients will come up to us and, and kind of vent their struggles or kind of talk about and ask for advice about COVID. So we're definitely one of the most easily accessible professionals as we as we are commonly, um, as is our most common title, the most accessible professional. But um, that, that also makes us a point of contact for a lot of patient frustration, a lot of, a lot of patient discussion. And, and I've heard many stories just like, you know, working in the pharmacy about what about what people think about the pandemic, about like all of their, about how they miss their family, about how they're struggling and they're kind of just like, you know, going day by day, just being like, oh, another month has gone by. Nice to see you again, Mr. Pharmacist. And then they kind of go on their day. But like, you know, we try to, we kind of like share the struggle during that short visit to the pharmacy. And, and I'm glad, I'm glad you're bringing this up, Chris. Um, the point about 
patients and us being the most accessible healthcare professional because one of the things that I've talked about myself working in a mental health hospital is the lack of funding and resources that we have in mental health throughout the province, if not country. And the fact that this pandemic has only widened and deepened those cracks in the foundation or lack of foundation really that we have for supporting mental health struggles. I mean, Chris and I, even though I work in a mental health hospital, I'm not equipped to deal with patients who are suffering from mental health issues or problems. Not to say I won't try my best to help them. I'm not formally trained in, 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 in conducting, you know, uh, cognitive behavior therapy or, or DBT or counseling. Chris isn't either. And this isn't something that's part of our toolkit as pharmacists. However, in, in this pandemic setting where you have a lack of access to professionals, uh, healthcare professionals in their respective fields, and you have an increasing burden on the healthcare system where you're having people having uh, increased mental health crises, issues, fatigued from the pandemic. You know, it's it's just it's just creating an additional burden on everyone in the healthcare system, and that also applies to we're not we're not alone, but you know, with everything that's also going on, it's not like a walk in the park either for anyone who's really practicing at this moment face to face with their patients. I think to summarize what pandemic fatigue is in a, in a sentence would be it's the anxiety of the virus itself. It's the mental and physical toll that lockdown causes on people. And it's just um, just the, str- the struggle of not having physical contact with friends and family is, is huge for so many people. Uh, not having that same social system that you can rely on before the pandemic. I guess the other thing that's that's fatiguing or frustrating or upsetting, and, and this adds to the, the general definition that Chris gave, is the approaches that we have taken. And, and this, uh, and, you know, disclaimer, this is a criticism of how our government has handled the pandemic. And I guess before Faison goes on his rant, this is kind of, obviously this is in hindsight, so we have a little bit more knowledge but at the same time, there were other countries that did the lockdown procedures better than Canada did with the same knowledge. So without further ado, Faison, go ahead. What's with the zones? Why, why did we decide to take each and every single one of, zone, uh, one of the zones in our, in our province, you know, the Toronto area, the Durham area, the Peel area, all those different areas, categorize them and then lock them down one by one? You, it's it's like I was talking to Chris about this earlier. It's like saying, you know, um, instead of doing a full lockdown, instead of everyone locking down all at once and you're stopping a transmittable virus that doesn't care about red, yellow, green. It doesn't care about those things. It doesn't care that your favorite mall is closed. It It, it has no sense, you know? Instead of just shutting down everything and stopping everything dead in its tracks, we went wave by wave until we're up over 2,000 cases per day. And now we're at a point where we say, yes, we should lock down. We're at a critical point where we need to have the safety of everyone in mind, but let's do it in four days. And, you know, this messaging that's coming from the government, that's coming from public healthcare officials, as someone who's working in the healthcare field and seeing 
uh, exposures on a daily basis. I see patients who have who have recovered. I know people who I've worked with who have who had to be admitted to the ICU. Knowing that these things are happening, and knowing that we're taking what seems to be a very lax approach to to a, a situation that is only growing day by day is incredibly frustrating um, because it only means a greater toll and burden on on not only myself, but my colleagues in the rest of the healthcare world. I was telling Chris, it's like you live in a neighborhood and there's a murder. Everyone knows there's a murder. He's killed someone at the end of the street. And the next day he kills someone the next door down, right? But instead of everyone just locking their doors all at once, you wait until... He gets to your block of the neighborhood and then you and then you lock all the houses and then you wait until he kills a few more people in the next block and then you lock all the houses there. How does that make any sense? Why are we waiting? We're, we're playing with people's lives, right? Like it just boggles my mind. And, and, and I've shared this frustration with my colleagues as well where we look out for patient safety, this is something that puts people into the hospital. This is something that kills people. This is something that affects loved ones. People can't even go to funerals or hold their loved one's hand while they are dying from COVID-19 anymore because of the situation that we're in. And instead we take a, a lax approach to something that we don't have to make up. We don't, we don't have to invent a new a new way to control the virus. This has been done in other countries like Chris said. It's so mind-boggling. And that's the end of my rant. That's it. That's my frustration. And it adds to the fatigue. It only makes me more mentally stressed knowing that this is the way we're approaching the situation. I think in hindsight, had we done a similar lockdown to say Australia, where they were locked down for 112 days straight and... I think recently they're actually seeing a couple's cases, but they did have a period where they were just completely shut down and then they had the ability to have a normal social life again. People were out in the streets, restaurants were open, everyone was was outside again and it was it was society was functioning as normal again. If we had done an approach like Australia had, then we we at least wouldn't have this fatigue like Faison had mentioned where we're we're doing a lockdown for two weeks and then we're kind of relaxing for a little bit. And then at a moment's notice, we could be on lockdown again. You know, there's like that constant nagging, you know, thought in the back, like, oh, is COVID going to be back? Oh, uh, here's, here's COVID again. Everyone locked down again. Like it, it, it's kind of annoying to have to. No one's taking it seriously. Yeah. And, and why should they? Why should they take something seriously when, when, the people who are in charge aren't taking it seriously, right? Um, and then you have people not abiding by uh, lockdown procedures or restrictions and social gatherings, people not wearing their masks because they just don't think it's serious enough. Um, and and I, I don't know, Chris, I don't know if you want to talk to this, but last year when COVID started, I was thinking to myself, thank God spring is coming up because people get to go outside. And now... Winter has begun. Well, I think, I think everyone knew, like any anyone who had listened to public health officials knew that there was going to be a second wave, because in the same flu pandemic in 1917, 
the exact same thing had happened. Like, we know that second waves happen in fall and winter. It's not a surprise. And I think um, anyone who had listened to public health officials knew that this was this is going to happen. It's just we didn't want to lock down at that point. You know, like we'd had a period of freedom in the summer where the cases were low enough that things were starting to get better. So we, we thought that we'd just be out of the woods. So, I mean, I'm not a public health official. I don't know if the right if the right procedure would have been just to lock down everything, you know, for the entirety of the winter, because then we'd kind of be in the same spot again now. But I guess, I guess we're just trying to vent right now. We're just, we're just all frustrated. And if anyone out there is feeling frustrated too, just, just know that you're, well, I'm sure you know, but you're not alone. Yeah. I'm just also worried that like in the winter, you don't get as much sun. Yeah. Pop that vitamin D. I, I, you know what? That's a good reminder. I'm actually going to, Take a vitamin D right right now. And there's not much to do, at least when people were quarantined in the spring and summer. You got to go outside. You got to go to a park or something like that, taking some nature. Now it's like you go outside and you freeze. So now you're stuck inside your home. No one wants to be stuck inside their home. It sucks. Let's, let's move on from here and just talk about the vaccine. Because the next thing that was a big big change in the world of pharmacy and COVID in general was that a little little company called Pfizer, you might have heard of them, they got their vaccine approved, and Moderna, that they, they were second place. And AstraZeneca somewhere, somewhere down the line. So vaccines out, it means we're saved, right? No more lockdown, no more masks, right? It's over. Unfortunately not. Unfortunately not. So even if in the best case scenario, the vaccine was in enough quantity and enough stock to vaccinate everyone in Canada or hopefully the world, um, unfortunately, you need a certain proportion of the population to actually want the vaccine and to get it done in order to provide what you would call herd immunity. So We've talked about this in a previous episode, but essentially, if you have a certain number of people around you that are protected from, for in this example, COVID, then if you are an immunocompromised person or someone who's ineligible for the vaccine for some other reason, since everyone else around you is already protected against COVID, your chances of getting COVID are so much less. And I want to clarify that herd immunity is not the same thing as getting infected by COVID-19 and then and then, and then infecting others so that everyone builds their immune system against COVID. That is not the same thing as herd immunity. Wait, Chris, you're, you, but I, I thought I thought that's what Sweden did. So yeah, Sweden is an example of someone who thought that that would work for them, where they just didn't have any lockdowns, they didn't do any precautions, and they just let people roam free, no, no regulations about social distancing, masks, whatever. So... If you are to Google Sweden COVID-19 cases right now, you will see that that did not work and it's not working. And everyone is very much criticizing Sweden's approach because they it has led to the deaths of thousands of people. So if someone tells you that herd immunity can be achieved through naturally getting infected, recovering from COVID... And then making sure that people around you also get infected or something like that so that they can recover. And now they have lasting antibodies. Just ask yourself, why would you want to get COVID, a full-blown COVID infection, 
when you can just get vaccinated and do not do the same thing, but do the real thing. Cause getting in, get, getting infected through COVID and then passing it to other people just makes people die. So ask questions, please. Speaking of questions, I know a lot of the hesitancy that comes from these vaccines is how fast they were developed and how this new technology of mRNA, uh, mRNA vaccine, vaccines is too new, that steps were skipped, that you know they didn't test out long-term efficacy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and now Chris is leading a great initiative with some of his classmates called the COVID Drug Evidence Initiative. And they've done some work on this. And, I, I, you know, Chris, I, I'll let you take over from here and tell me what your research has shown. Well, not research, more like summary. <laughs> but to give you the quick rundown, essentially all of the vaccines that have been approved so far, which are the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, they have gone through extensive research and they've gotten the same research done as any vaccine would have completed. Essentially, the reason it's faster is because there was so much funding and so much need for a vaccine to be created quickly that whereas a regular vaccine may have had to wait for funding and wait for regulatory bodies to actually approve their data, Pfizer and Moderna in their research didn't have to wait for money because the money was was not an issue. And they didn't have to wait for the regulators to go over their paper because the regulators were, were itching to get a vaccine out there. So that's why the process was accelerated. It wasn't that any steps were skipped. And if you're kind of cautious about the fact that, oh, well, we don't know any long-term safety data about this vaccine. Well, guess what? We don't know any long-term safety data about any new drug or any new vaccine. This is not any different. Or or, or getting COVID. That too, because COVID actually has only been around for less than a year at this point. And we don't even, like, even though we don't know the long-term risks of COVID, we do know that it causes long-term disabilities of the heart, of the lungs, of, you know, well, I mean, I think those are enough, you know, honestly, that, that's enough to make you not want to get COVID. And so far, what have we seen for the vaccines? Well, we've seen the regular stuff that you get for vaccines. You, you might get a bit of a mild fever. You get might get some body aches. And the worst reactions we've seen are anaphylaxis, aka allergic reactions. And there's been a couple of news stories out there where people are saying, oh, the COVID vaccine causes allergic reactions. Should this be something you're scared of? The rates of anaphylaxis are very low. And even if anaphylaxis happens, you're going to be getting the vaccine in a place where you have healthcare professionals around you that can help you if you have an, an anaphylactic reaction. In case you're unaware, um, when you have an allergic reaction, symptoms pop up within five minutes, if not a bit longer than that. And pharmacies, as well as any hospital that you'll be getting the vaccine in, will ask you to sit for around 15 minutes, especially with the COVID vaccine, since this has become a more pressing issue that people are worried about. And if anything happens in that 15 minutes, you have the best care available to you to prevent any further complications from happening. It's as simple as popping, say, like a Benadryl to prevent any further reaction from happening for you. So in a nutshell, the efficacy, if you guys haven't seen it, is around 95%, meaning that you have a 95% relative reduction in the risk of getting COVID 
if you got the vaccine versus getting nothing. And the safety is comparable to other vaccines. In other words, it's very safe. And if that isn't enough to convince you to get vaccinated, not only against the COVID vaccine, but but against influenza, I'll tell you right here, right now, if you're listening, as soon as I'm able to, I will be immunized against COVID-19. I will take the vaccine and I'm not doing it for me. This is going to seem holier than thou, but I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for all the patients that I see and I'm doing it for my grandparents. I'm doing it for anyone I meet out in the public who may be immunocompromised and is not able to get the vaccine. I know that the vaccine right now in its form has not been tested on uh, children, if I'm not mistaken, and so they're not indicated to get the vaccine. I'm doing it for kids because I don't want them to have everlasting damage to their organs. Um, so if not for yourself, think about the people around you and think about what you can do as just an ordinary person, an ordinary citizen, to protect those in your country. Mm -hmm. The majority of everyone listening can get the vaccine done, but we want to protect those who can't get the vaccine, which is, again, the principle of herd immunity that we talked about earlier. When we, when we first mentioned vaccines, we had said that, unfortunately, we're probably going to have to keep doing social distancing and masks. So to summarize why we're probably going to have to continue social distancing and wearing masks for the better part of next year is because, number one, we don't have enough vaccines to go around. Even within Canada, they're saying that rollout of the public vaccination program might start as early as April. And that doesn't mean everyone's going to be done in April either. That means everyone's going to be getting started to get vaccinated in April. And the, there's a couple numbers thrown around as to how many people need to become vaccinated in order for the population to be considered uh, protected against COVID. But it ranges from 60, 70, 80 percent. So we're going to it's going to take a while to get, you know, 80% of the 30 million Canadians out there vaccinated. So in summary, the vaccine's all we got to protect ourselves against COVID other than what the norm is, which is hand hygiene, social distancing, and masks. The safety, valid concern about the long-term effects of the vaccine, albeit from what I understand, there are low risks. However, we have already seen lasting damage that COVID has itself caused to humans. So if you were to weigh one against the other in terms of benefits versus risks, I'd much rather get the vaccine than get COVID itself and risk transmitting it to everyone around me. Because like I said, as part of the daily concerns that I have or the weekly concerns that I have is if I were to get COVID right now, if I, if I, got symptoms and I got swabbed and I was positive, the first thing I'm going to think about is who I gave it to and who I worked with. And if, if my wife has it, if the, I don't know anyone around me, like that's the first thing that my mind's going to go to. And like Chris has said, it's anxiety causing, it's stressful. And I don't want to go through that. And I don't want to know that someone else got it because of me. Last, this is literally the last, last point about the COVID vaccine. Cause I just thought of something. I saw a post online that the new technique that the vaccine uses, which is the mRNA uh, technique, might be detrimental or might be causing extra safety concerns. To those people, I just want to say that 
the mRNA that is inside the vaccine, how it works is that it doesn't, it doesn't affect your own DNA by any means. What happens is that mRNA is like this precursor molecule that encodes proteins. So after the body is basically done seeing the mRNA, that stuff gets degraded, it's out of your body, it never touches your DNA, it's not a concern. It's not going to cause like some long-term genetic mutation in the body. That's not how it works. And, it, and it's not going to encode any microchips either, okay? So, so don't worry about that. Finally, let's talk about pharmacies and pharmacists. That's what you guys are here for. You want to hear about what, it's, what is going on in the world of pharmacy and what has happened, what COVID has caused us to do. Well, there's been a lot of changes. I mean, even just the obvious ones are the availability of COVID testings inside pharmacies. There's been the changes in regulations where, at least in Ontario, we've been given a couple more responsibilities, like we're, we're able to extend narcotic and controlled prescriptions. We're allowed to take verbals for all sorts of different medications that we weren't able to before. And we're allowed to transfer all sorts of medications too. So... Apart from that, though, what we wanted to talk about was was not how pharmacies have adapted or or were forced to adapt, but how pharmacies have actually struggled to adapt. One of the one of the running jokes in pharmacy is we still use decades old technology in order to transmit prescriptions. Um, the wild thing is, and I, I mean. Well, which is the fax machine, by the way. Oh, yeah, right. The fax machine. Or, I mean, you pick up the phone. The doctor picks up the phone and calls in a verbal prescription. The, the wild thing is you'd think in this day and age there'd be some sort of secure platform. Um, and and th they're making it. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's on its way. But, I mean, a lot of stuff happens securely over the Internet. I mean, you, you do banking over it. And I understand patient confidentiality and, and all that stuff is very important. But anyone could fax anything if you got the number. Anyone could call anything in if you've got the number. Um, I worked with a pharmacist where if someone called in a narcotic, they would have me look up the doctor on the college website and call that number back or make sure, because, because we didn't have caller ID. Wow. And so I'd call that number back to confirm that this was indeed the doctor's office that was calling it. Think about the, the the hoops that we're jumping through. Imagine not paying ten dollars for voice or caller ID. Oh my! Anyway, this sorry. this is how it was in 2015, 2016. So so, well, what I'm trying to get at here is the technology that's in pharmacy and generally in the medic in in, in, in the medical world when it comes to hospitals, doctors' offices, etc. It wasn't really well equipped to do medicine outside of the offices and face-to-face -face interactions. Which, which is, which is like, to be fair, like Fizan is saying, it's, that applies to every healthcare field. It wasn't, it wasn't just pharmacy. So this is more of a criticism to healthcare as a whole. So it was about time that we kind of came into the future. So, I mean, what, what did happen over the last couple of months or the last nine months, actually not a couple, is that there was just a large shift from the physical boxed pharmacy that we're used to, to actually embracing some parts of virtual care. So this might be virtual meds checks or over the phone meds checks at the very least, delivery services that are, that are all 
done outside of the pharmacy and dealt with outside of the pharmacy and um, just just virtual care across all of healthcare fields. So it, it's been a long time coming, I feel like, but I guess COVID has acted as a catalyst, a much needed catalyst for accelerating virtual care. Absolutely. And this, this goes back to um, what's happening now is that other companies are coming in and, and creating products and inventing products that to, to, to bridge that gap, right? You've got companies that are doing appointment scheduling for vaccinations. You've got companies that are doing uh, mail order pharmacy instead because no one wants to go in and, and you know, possibly get exposed. And so you're, you're losing out on business, essentially. And you see this exact same thing. And I hate to compare this. I hate to compare it. But I'm only doing it because it's something that I recently read about. But fast food <laughs> restaurants... Because no one, there's there's no more dining anymore. There's no more, uh, and and you have to do takeout, and delivery. A lot of restaurants don't do delivery. Pharmacies do delivery. Just to let you know, we 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 have been doing our own deliveries, but they they usually didn't do their own delivery. And so what happened was Uber came in with Uber Eats, and now they're capitalizing where they take like a thirty percent cut off of the food order, where they rack up the price. And restaurants are losing out on money. So now restaurants are developing their own delivery systems instead. There's like some website that a bunch of Toronto restaurants made, where it's like these are restaurants that will do their own delivery, and you don't have to pay the exorbitant fees for Uber Eats just to get your food, or even just takeout, because because some restaurants didn't offer takeout. So so. What I'm getting at here, and let's move away from the fast food, the, the awful fast food comparison I just made. But what I'm getting at here is that because once again, we did not innovate or foresee a situation, mind you, this is you know hindsight, but you gotta be prepared with your business. You gotta, you gotta think ahead, you have to be innovative. Because it hadn't happened, other people are getting into the game that are not necessarily pharmacists um, because they just think that way. They have a business mindset. They have an innovative mindset. And they are capitalizing off of our lack of innovation and drive to change. So these services that Faison is talking about, the ones that are taking taking the initiative and taking the most out of this virtual care are, are services that have provided platforms that make virtual care easier or platforms that have uh, taught patients how to use their medications appropriately at home or or a bigger example and this is the scary one that people don't like to talk about is amazon pharmacy which is you know basically a mail order pharmacy and and you're going to be having patients that no longer even talk to a pharmacist perhaps and they'll just get all their prescriptions online through amazon and and that is the big scary boogeyman that pharmacy does not like to talk about but you know what, Chris? See, here's the thing, right? Where are the pharmacies? And I'm sure there are some of them out there, but it doesn't take a radical change. It's not that hard or radical to come up with having some sort of encrypted uh, laptop or tablet where patients can access virtual care in your pharmacy and you just offer delivery to their house, right? Like that's essentially what these players are doing. Um scheduling you can schedule stuff on your own you don't have to do it i mean you sorry you don't have to pay someone else to do it um having a relief pool right um these are things unfortunately that and i know i'm talking from a very high level i seem like an armchair pharmacist pharmacy owner but 
if you really truly invest into your business and give it the time of day, I, I really think you don't have to rely on these services in order to continue prospering through an, an event like this. And correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, feel free to message me. Tell me your experiences. Maybe that isn't the case. Um, but it's these innovative changes that will ensure that pharmacies continue to live and it won't just be mail order pharmacies all across the country instead. I mean, even within the realm of big box pharmacy, I think in the States, CVS has has created a, a kind of platform that you kind of mentioned, that that iPad that you can can play on or manage your prescriptions on within the pharmacy. I'm pretty sure I've seen that at CVS Like health before. hubs. I think they're called yeah, health, health hubs. hubs. Yeah, health hubs. They might not be the exact thing that you're talking about, but something like that exists and it's not that hard to implement. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I really wanted to quickly uh, talk about, and it's not just adaptation to the business model, but adaptation to clinical practice in the pharmacy setting. Um, something that we've seen that people haven't, I mean, they've talked about it. I've seen people talk about it, but they, I don't think they've seen how precedent setting this is, is that all of a sudden, as soon as COVID hit, our college, I think it was the college and the government basically in tandem, allowed us to extend and transfer narcotics. We can adapt narcotics um, and it's all good. It's all fine and dandy. Like we can all of a sudden do this thing that it was like taboo to even talk about. Um, if you asked your, far- if you, if you were a student and you asked your pharmacist, you're like, Hey, can we, can we transfer this narcotic or extend your narcotic? They'd be like, you're dumb. How could you even think that? And they'd make you go read the, the OCP regulations three times over. Right? Like we, I know the chart, I know the exact, the prescription summary chart, the prescription summary laws chart, whatever it's called. It's, it's white, it's yellow, it's blue. It's all those colors, fancy chart. I know it because I had to keep reading it over and over because I was too dumb to understand what I couldn't do. But now those things we can do all of a sudden. And I guess what people don't realize is they say it's going to expire, but I kind of doubt that. We've ha- we have it extended all the way till September 2021, I think. But once you have something and pharmacists are doing it, then I, I-, I don't know. I-, I feel like it's not something that could be taken away now. Even thinking about it logistically, imagine if you were a patient who had transferred their medications back home, maybe, or just away from your permanent residence for a little bit because you wanted to stay with your family during the lockdown. How would all of a sudden, if in September of next year, pharmacies couldn't transfer narcotics, imagine the headache that that would cause for so many people. It just wouldn't make sense. Like, what are you going to do? Make a one-time exemption for the one person to send it back? I don't know. The rules are just going to be too hard to suddenly change again. So all I'm saying is brace yourself. We have to start adapting and, 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 and getting ready for system changes that are forcing scope of practice uh, to happen. And one of these changes that forced it to happen was COVID. Um, it only took a pandemic for us to be able to extend narcotics. Oh, only. But, but it's here now and we can do it. Um, and that, that's all I want to say. That was my soapbox. We talked about a lot of things this episode, guys. We, we had a lot on our chest that was kind of brewing and we thought it would be best to kind of give it to you in a three-parter like this, uh, talking about, um, you know, the, 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 the pandemic fatigue that people, I'm sure a lot of people are facing and, and reach out, please, if you're feeling that way or talk to your friends about it, because I think it's something people need to talk about to really address and process. Um, the second thing 
that we talked about was the COVID vaccine. And, and again, we're facing this vaccine hesitancy despite the science that's out there. And despite this looming risk and, 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 and anxiety-provoking issue that's global. And then the last thing we wanted to talk about was, you know, how pharmacy has kind of navigated its way through the pandemic. And if there's a few things that we want you to take away from this, and I'll let Chris do the rest of it. Um, the first one is pandemic fatigue, I believe, is real. It's affecting people. I, I see a huge issue with mental health. Healthcare workers are getting drained. My friends are getting drained. Pharmacists are getting drained. My colleagues are getting drained. And this is just people in the healthcare realm. I don't know what it's like for those out there who have lost their jobs. I don't know what it's like for people out there who can't make ends meet now because they just don't have the money to sustain themselves or have lost businesses or have lost family and friends. It's real. It's happening. Please try and seek some help if you can or talk to someone about it um, if you are in that position. And the second thing is that the COVID vaccine is going to be out soon or maybe already is out depending on which country you're in and you should try to get it as soon as it is possible for you to get the vaccine. It's safe and it's upwards of 95% effective. And the last thing we'll mention is that businesses, all businesses, pharmacies included, have had to adapt because of the catalyst that COVID has been. And for anyone who is wondering how exactly you might want to adapt or change in the future, we do have some upcoming thrilling interviews with some community pharmacists and some people involved outside of community pharmacy that are talking about the future of pharmacy and how the profession is soon to change. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode. Um, stay tuned for more interviews that we're going to be doing. The season is jam packed with interviews. Um, hint, hint, there is no real season, but you know, again, hang in there. Things are going to be all right. Hopefully we'll be seeing a silver lining um, moving towards spring of 2021. And Chris and I are both crossing our fingers that next year, same time, we'll be talking about how COVID is over. Or maybe just not at all. Because you know what? It'd be great if we just didn't have to talk about COVID. Exactly. Thanks for listening, guys. And we'll see you all in three, possibly four Probably not five weeks. If it's not, if you don't see us in five weeks, we're actually just, we're, the podcast is done. So, so, so definitely at least four weeks from now. We love you. Bye-bye now. Off the Script is produced by Tom Fung, Faison Baig, and Chris Tse. Quality control is done by Stephen Guan. Mixing and editing is done by Chris Tse. Off the Script is a podcast focused on education and entertainment. However, we are not a replacement for real medical advice. Please see your local healthcare professional if you have any questions about your own personal health. Thank you to Sean Singh for creating our introductory music, and thank you to Chill Hot Music for allowing us to use their music in our intermission and ending. You can find more great songs at chillhop.com slash listen.